Father in heaven, thank you for this community. Thank you for this city. Um, thank you for blessing us with the beautiful mountains. Jesus, thank you for dying on the cross for our sins and for raising from the dead and giving us hope. And as we come here tonight, we come in a lot of different places. Um, some of us are happy to be here. Some of us are wrestling um, with why we're even here, believing in you. But we're all here, and we ask, Jesus, that you would take that as a statement of us seeking. And that, Holy Spirit, we ask that in the process of that, you would give us courage to believe what's true and to push out what's false. And as we interact, Holy Spirit, we ask that you would help us not to hold against one another the way things are said, um, but that we would seek truth and that we would take it in and that we would wrestle with it and be transformed. I ask all of that in your name, Jesus. Amen. Um, we are in a series on rest. Um, we've been in this series for, this is our third week of the series. And for those of you who don't know, we're in Lent, and Lent is 40 days leading up to Easter with six celebration days. Often what you do with Lent um, and it's part of the church calendar, and it's something that you do with the rest of the church community. Um, but it's a time of fasting and focusing on the sacrifice of Jesus and really thinking about your own brokenness and your own need for the cross and preparing yourself to celebrate um, Easter. But in that process of Lent, we've decided to just reflect on resting, and the reason that we decided to reflect on resting is just because I, I said to all of you that you're tired, right? That we're all tired, and we need to rest. And there, I gave you three reasons um, that you need rest, or you're tired, actually, is that you don't get enough sleep. I mean, that's real simple. Most of you, including me, we just don't get enough sleep. Some of it is there are reasons for that. We have babies. Others of that, we just choose not to get enough sleep. But more importantly than, than sleep, because a lot of us know that getting enough sleep isn't necessarily the thing that's going to solve our tiredness, is that we have no direction in our life. And what I mean is, is that we don't know why we're here, why we're at our job, why we're doing what we're doing. And when you don't have direction in your life, that makes you tired. It makes you tired. And thirdly, the reason that we're talking about rest and the reason that we're tired is that we're emotionally drained. The psalmist in Psalm 46.10 says, Be still and know that I am God. There is at least some element of stillness that connects us back into God. And when we're frantic, we become emotionally drained. Everything seems like it's pulling on us, and we have no real way of resting. And so these are the three reasons that we tend to be tired. And so we've been kind of going over this process of what rest is is. And so we've been talking about the three principles of rest, um, and we've been getting that out of Mark chapter 6, um, verse 31. In Mark chapter 6, uh, Mark is a gospel, and we find it kind of throws us right into Jesus's ministry. And in Mark chapter 6, Jesus is actually relatively busy, right? It's so He's so busy, in fact, that he forgets to eat, his disciples forget to eat. Um, and, and so I would pause there and say, it's okay to be busy. In fact, it's probably if you're following Jesus, you're going to find yourself busy 
helping and engaging other people and, and, and ministering to people. Because what Jesus is about is about people. So you're going to find yourself busy. But in this passage where Jesus is busy, he sends something to his disciples as it kind of dawned on him that they haven't eaten. He says, come with me by yourselves to a quiet place and get some rest. So they went away by themselves in a boat to a solitary place. So he decided to kind of the overarching principle, the principles that we're going to look at come out of this verse of rest. There are three principles of rest that we're going to kind of work with. Number one is that you need to unplug. As you walk through the, uh, the gospel, you will see Jesus repeatedly saying to people, come with me. That when we talk about rest, you have to unplug, meaning you have to move from the busyness to something else, right? Part of resting is getting away. So there's an unplugging. The second principle of rest is community, because when you decide that you need some rest, it doesn't mean that you're running away from people. Jesus tells his disciples to come with him. It's his disciples, right? Rest can happen in community. It doesn't mean that it doesn't happen alone, and aloneness isn't a good principle for rest, but you need to know that resting doesn't mean you're running from people. Okay, you don't rest by trying to escape people. And the third principle of rest is that rest has to happen in a quiet place. Okay, Rest has to happen in a quiet place. Jesus invites people away to a quiet place. It's very difficult to rest without going to a quiet space. Now, in the Ten Commandments, Exodus 20, verse 8, God gives the command that we should Sabbath, right? And Sabbath meaning that on the seventh day we're supposed to rest because Sabbath means literally means rest or it means to be still or to cease from activity. And so in the, in the Ten Commandments, Moses says that the reason for this is is because Jesus worked for six days and God worked for six days in creating the universe and the world and then he rested on the seventh day and he called it holy, okay? So there's something about rest that involves being still, and I guarantee you it's very difficult for you to cease from activity and be still without going to a quiet place. Okay? So these are kind of the principles that we've been working with. Now, what we're trying to do is offer you some very practical things to do when you rest. And so we're breaking these three principles down and offering you some practices. So this week and last week, we're talking about unplugging, right? Talking about unplugging. And so we talked about disengaging, right? The practice of disengaging. And so what I said you needed to do was to disrupt yourself, right? So part of unplugging is that you have to have a disruption. Now, what did the disciples do when Jesus said, come away with me? They got in a boat, Now, if you know anything about the story of the disciples and Jesus, if you've read the Gospels, guess where a lot of major events happen in their life? In boats. And do you know why? Because they're fishermen. But not all of them, so I don't know how they convinced everybody to get in the boat. But a lot of times, it happens in a boat. And what's interesting about being in a boat is that you're surrounded by water. You're trapped. You're You're disengaged. Like, you have no way other than to jump off 
and into the water. And so I suggested to you last week that you needed to do something to disrupt yourself, right? To create some kind of disruption that put you inside the boat. See, the metaphor of the boat is going to be our place of unplugging, right? Where you have to go away from stuff. So I suggested to you that you do things like stop watching Netflix, shut your Facebook account down, fast a meal, change what you do in the morning when you get into your car, turn off the radio. You can go through any many different things. Just change your routine in order to enough to disrupt yourself. But the purpose of disrupting was for you to do three things. Number one was you, you needed to question the answer, right? The whole point of this disruption was to put yourself in a space where you could question the answer. Jesus was in the boat. There was a storm. You remember this story? And the disciples are freaking out, and Jesus is sound asleep. And the question that they ask him is, don't you care about us? We're in the middle of the storm. So part of unplugging is putting yourself in a place where you can ask the hard questions. Part of unplugging is putting yourself in the place, number two, where you can prepare for your paradigms and boundaries to be changed, right? Where things, where you have an opportunity to have things change, the way you think about things. There are many moments on the boat with the disciples where when Jesus acts and he changes, he calms down the storms or he walks on the water, the thing that they end up doing is worshiping God. There's this recognition of who the Lord is. Your paradigm is shifted. And third, the reason you would disengage because it gives you an opportunity to practice and fail. When you're disengaging from what you're doing and resting, there's actually opportunity to practice. So if you remember the story in the boat, when Peter and all the disciples are rowing against the wind and Jesus sees them and it's the middle of the night and he goes walking on the water by them. You know, he's running on the water. They're pulling on the oars in the middle of the water and they think he's a ghost and he says, don't be afraid. And Peter's like, well, if you really are Jesus, then let me get out of the boat. He gets out of the boat. He looks at Jesus. He's walking. He looks sideways and says, oh my gosh, I'm walking on water. He starts to sink, right? And Jesus saves him and they get back in the boat. He had an opportunity to try and try again and fail and fail better, right? That's what I said last week. Is that when we disengage, we're creating opportunities for us to wrestle with things and to practice in our not in our normal routine. Okay? So that's that's number one. That's number first practice. Now tonight, what we're gonna talk about is we're going to talk about what it looks like to evaluate, okay? So when we unplug, one of the things that you and I have to do is we need to evaluate. We need to evaluate our life. Most of us don't like to evaluate our life. Evaluating our life takes effort, and it might mean that we become accountable for some things. And so we prefer not to do that. And so I want to read to you the passage that we're going to kind of work through, and that is Matthew chapter 11, starting in verse 28. Now, this is a passage that we use at the village a lot. If you're in a pilgrim group, which is our different kind of Bible studies, you know that part of what we call the hot seat or the table of decision is built around this little passage. Chapter 11, verse 28. Jesus has just made a pretty dramatic statement about himself and the fact that he's God. And then he says this, Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, 
and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Now, the rabbis, had a, their teachings were called a burden. Not because they were like, oh, no, they're a burden. Though they were a burden, they were heavy. But it was the burden of the rabbi. And that was his teaching, his interpretation, and his application of the law. Okay? It was his burden. So when Jesus comes up and says he's a rabbi, and he's saying, my teaching in my way is light, my teaching in my way is easy, it's not like the overwhelming teachings of the rabbis. It's different. But in the context of this passage where Jesus says, I am God, and then he says, come to me, all you who are basically tired, weary, and don't know what to do with yourself, I think this is a little bit bigger in this way. I don't think he's really talking about the rabbis and their burden. I think he's talking about something bigger. I think he's talking about good and evil. He's talking about the burden of evil. And you see, I think he's talking about two predominant rabbis in the universe. There are two. One is God and one is Satan. And Satan has a particular teaching which is a burden. And Jesus has a particular teaching which is light and easy. Now, there's a key in this passage that Jesus says that he says that we have to take his yoke upon us and learn from him. In order to take the yoke of someone, you have to realize that you already have a yoke on you. You need to know what it is and take it off. Like you have to be part of that process. And so what I think part of resting and part of the process of resting and unplugging is evaluating your life in a way that you understand the burden of the enemy. Now, I know that maybe some of you are like, what are you talking about, Eric? Well, I really do believe that there is a dark spiritual power, and you and I tend to grab the burden of that power over and over again and put it on ourselves. And then the enemy and darkness puts its foot on our shoulder and pushes us down. And so part of resting is beginning the process of actually recognizing, identifying that burden, and taking it off. Okay? So... I'm going to offer you two ways to do that tonight. The first one is actually, you're not going to find this little principle in the Bible. Okay? This idea of 150 friends comes from a guy named Dunbar. He's an evolutionary psychologist. Um, but what he has concluded through many of the things that he's done and the studies that he's done with a lot of different people is that you and I are really only capable of having 150 friends. Okay? Now, actually, the number is 153.4, but who wants to be a .4 friend anyway? Right? So it's 150 friends. And he's done a lot of research in it, but here's how it breaks down. So let me kind of explain it to you, because I think this is really important in understanding your life. And I think, for me, if you're willing to do this evaluation, at least when I've done it, it's transformative in understanding how I operate and the different burdens that I deal with. So what he says is, is that all people have five emotionally close friends, like people who you live life out with, who you're all, like they're the people who are connected to you. 
Now that could be your spouse, that could be a child, that could be a really close neighbor. It could be a lot of different kinds of sets of people, but you only have five. The way I like to kind of think about it, it's the five people who, when you ended up on a and on a desert island, they would be the five people you didn't choose to have with you, but they just showed up because they're connected to you, right? So when you evaluate this and you're thinking about it, you're thinking about who are the five people that would end up on the desert island with me without me choosing them to be on the desert island, okay? This is important to think about who those five people might be. They're the people who, who like, they know you that you have strange, odd, codependent relationships with them. You're constantly connected. Sometimes they're your mother. Sometimes they're your uncle, right? So that's the first five. The next 10 are the people on the waiting list to get onto the desert island, right? So if somebody moves out of one of those five, that person's moving into the spot, right? That's 15 people. And, And really, it's just these 15 people who they know you, like they know who your grandpa is. They've probably had dinner with him at some point in time. That kind of, they know last time you had surgery, maybe. They know, like, but they know kind of the ongoing narrative of your life and they're involved in that narrative, right? In some way or another. So I consider them the 10 people who are waiting to get on the desert island with you, okay? Then you have the 35. These are 35 people who you would just call friends. You've probably been to their house three or four times a year. Um, they're the people who are on the island next door, right? You can swim to them. You can take your boat over there. Like, they're your friends. Maybe you go to work with them every single day, so you see them every day. Um, they're people that you know their kids. You go to their kids' birthdays. Um, when, when something happens, you're not going to necessarily visit them in the hospital, but you're going to pray for their, for their kid or to pray for them but you probably won't visit them. You're just going to pray for them. They're probably, you know, uh, one of your 35 friends. Now, that gives you 50. Now, it's a discipline. So here's my suggestion, is that you try to list out this 50 people who, who are in your social structure. Now, that last 100, they're all on Facebook. Uh, no, uh, the, <laughs> the last 100 people are... You know, there are people that maybe you go to church with, but you only see them on Sundays. Um, there are people maybe like you go over to your friend's house and that friend's always there. Like, you know, like his friend is there. And so you know his friend because you're friends too, but you guys really aren't friends. So you know each other. You hang out when you go over to his house, right? That's a harder list to make. But that first 50 is an important part. Now, here's the thing how this, this works. This church, you know, depending on the sickness levels of children um, and other ailments of the village, is about 80 adults and almost 50 children, okay? So that means that there are people in this church who are not in your 150 people. They're not your friends, Right? Now, here's the interesting thing about this social network thing is that if somebody moves into the five, that means somebody else moves out into the 10, which means that somebody else moves out into the 35, which probably means that somebody moves out of 35 into 100, which means that somebody moves out of the 150. See, they get pushed out. So we have in our social structures, there is a fluidity to the way we relate with each other. And 
So have you ever had that experience where you had a really close friend and you thought you were super connected and they got another job and then you didn't talk to them for three years, right? All of a sudden they left the five and went into the hundred, maybe even left and are not really your friend anymore, right? What, what happens in our life is that one of the things is that A, the, we end up transitioning with our different friends and these, and those are, that's stressful because we don't know what to do with the intimacy change. But more importantly, here's the evaluation that I want you to do. It's just an interesting exercise to see who fits into this and where they are and what different activities that you're, you know, are they at church, are they at work, you know, where are they in your life? But when you look at the five and the ten, this is what I want you to do. I want you to ask the question, does this person energize me? Or does this person suck energy from me? Or are they neutral? Do they do both? Right? Now, I'm not saying that then when you say, oh, that person sucks energy out of, from me, I'm going to kick them out because they might be your kid. Right? You know what I mean? <laughs> well, you suck energy out, out with you. You're, you're into the hundred now, buddy. No, that's not what I'm talking about. It's, it's actually really good for you just to say, okay, wow, so I, my mother is in that five and there is, and my mother is really difficult for me to be around. And my mom's right here. I love her to death. So let's not, I'm not talking about her. But she's just a good example. And, you know, and as a pastor, I hear a lot about moms. So, um, but what it helps you do is it helps you understand, oh, there's, there's, there's maybe one of the reasons that I feel tired is that in my closest structure, I have some really draining people to me, right? Not asking, saying you should change that, but it might change the way you interact. It might begin to reveal to you some of the dynamics that are going on in the intimacy of your life. So when I think about the burden that you and I sit under, a lot of times what we do is we're moving so fast that we actually don't sit around and evaluate it all. And so we don't actually understand the larger social dynamic that we live in. And we don't understand what parts of our life and our friendships are giving us energy and are taking energy from us. So we just are like, why am I tired? Well, you have three little kids and they're in the five. That's why you're tired, right? You can, you know, there are lots of different reasons. And it's good to just know that. Part of Jesus lifting the burden is you just understanding why you're tired, what's going on what choices you might need to make. And it may just mean that you can pray more targeted as you evaluate things. So I'm actually, before I move to the next one, would love to answer any questions or have somebody make some observations before we move on. I'm going to go here and then there. Uh, Okay. Yes. All right, here we go. You guys all need to wear mics. So I'm, I guess I'm fixated on the friends terminology, but this can be your family. Yes. And I 150 have, people. Okay. All right. So just people. People. Okay. Who, who you're connected to. Okay. Yes. No. Emily, there you are. So the energy draining, is that always, it, the, is that always negative? Because it kind of sounds negative. Because um, some I, I, of the energy draining people I have in my life, I really 
love yes. and enjoy. And and I would say it's it's not negative. It's just negative in the sense of understanding maybe why you're tired. But not necessarily negative in the sense of loving, enjoying, and engaging those people. So maybe how many of those you have. Yes. Yes. Is there stress caused by people in the 10 trying to move into the 5 slot? Yes. Yeah. <laughs> no, I think that's, that, that we have like our friends and they want to be in the, and we all have the inner circle. But I also think the the moving on from like Facebook, we believe that we can have more than 150 friends, right? Some of us have 1000. Um but we we don't know that. We, we yeah, we just we can't do that. Um it's not humanly possible. Um, any other questions or thoughts on that? Here's, here's the thing that I would encourage you to do. Just start the project. It's just really interesting seeing how your own social dynamic is built. Um, and, and who's in that. Yes. Say it really loud. If I want to read more about this guy's study. Yes. Yeah. Forbes does, uh, Dunbar is his name. So if you just type in Dunbar and Forbes magazine does some stuff on him, but he's actually a professor in Oxford. So you can kind of go look at his stuff. They've done a lot of historic research and how people organize themselves from the very beginning of time and stuff like that. So very fascinating. Um, yes. No, it's my take on it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> well, yeah, I, I don't know if I want to say to that. <laughs> yeah, I, I know your pastor's telling you to rank people. I'm so sorry. I, yeah. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, I only have the mic. Okay, use that and then go for it. And I'm going to pause it. Um, so we rank them whether we um, do it intentionally or not because I think about that with old friends that I have that I haven't talked to in 10 years, but they're super close when I see them once in a while. So he may not have this in his like story, but I have it in my setup that there's people in the inner five that – but it layered by time. Mm -hmm. So my current inner five may not include them, yeah. but that doesn't demote them from the yes. inner five that they were yeah. for four or five years yes. of college or whatever. Yeah. Yeah. There you go. <laughs> there you go. Um, so I want to pause this and I love, we could, I love these kinds of things, but I want to move to the next part, which is a slightly more serious. Um, this is also serious, but it's very serious. Uh, but it's also fun, and I get kind of giddy about these kinds of things because um, I want to be a sociologist, and God made me a pastor. So we'll move to the next thing. So this won't be unfamiliar to all to many of you, but I want to talk about the burden of false belief. Okay, and here's what I mean: so when we're going to evaluate, and you're, and and we have things like we're feeling anxious about ranking our people. Um, a lot of the burden that makes us tired in life is that we live under a whole bunch of false beliefs that kind of we use to narrate our life, okay? And they're heavy to us. 
And most of them come out of anxiety and fear. One of the things that angels and Jesus say in the Bible over and over again is do not be afraid, which is something that you and I end up just kind of caught in is anxiety and fear. And out of anxiety and fear, we have what we would call false beliefs. And what these false beliefs are, they're built around who we think God is, who we think others are, and what we think about ourselves. And they tend to be overarching, controlling narratives in our life. So for instance, for me, out of my own fears and anxieties, one of the things that I believe about God that seems to narrate itself from place to place and event to event is that I believe that if that I need to get it right for God to bless me. For God to make sure that, like, that for me to be in with God. If I don't get it right, God's not going to let me in to his five. Right? I'm not getting in to the five. And, and that's a controlling narrative in my life that I, I wrestle with a lot. It's my false belief about God. I tend to then bring that down to a false belief of other people. And so my false belief about other people is, is that all of you are judging me to make sure that, and you want to, to like, if I don't get it right, if I don't make you happy, if I don't, if, not, if everything's not okay, if I do it wrong, then you're going to reject me as a friend and you're going to leave my church, right? Those are the, the, the things I, it's a false belief that I narrate my life with. So if something goes wrong in relationship, I think, oh, I, I just didn't do it right. And now everything's going to go wrong because people don't, they're not going to accept me in my brokenness, right? So the false belief that I then have about myself that I usually wrestle with is that it's usually two parts, but one is that I have to get it right for things to work out. So I'm constantly trying to figure out how to get it right. So one of the exercises in evaluating your life and just stopping and trying to think about the overarching narrative or false beliefs as a burden that you live under. And here's how you can do it very simply. Just think about the last event that created fear or anxiety in your life. The last time when you had the ah in your heart. And if you can just go back to that moment really quickly and think about what you believed about God, what you believed about other people, and what you believed about yourself before you began to rationalize things, that just that instant thing that you thought, most likely you'll be able to begin to touch on what you believe about God, others, and yourself, right? That often, out of negative events that produce false or produce emotion, a, a negative emotion in our life, we have these strongly held beliefs about God and others and self, and they re- revisit almost every time we experience something negatively, like those beliefs come up again and again and again, okay? So, it's important for you to understand these because if you're going to remove the burden, if you're going to begin to take on the burden of Jesus that's light and easy, then you need to understand that it's not just these false beliefs, but you you are under the teaching of the enemy and you're in a dialogue with the enemy. And, And the enemy spends his time and here's the thing, a lot of you are like, what do you mean the enemy? You know that conversation you have in your head? That is the enemy. That conversation about your failings, that's the enemy. And what he usually does is talk to you with affirming stories. So it's pretty easy. When, I, when something happens and I have that anxiety and I start thinking, man, I, if I don't get this right, people are going to be upset at me. 
the narrative I hear is like, well, you remember that time you said that to that one of your friends and then you guys aren't friends anymore? Know how that worked out for you, right? Oh, remember, remember the time when you were all by yourself and, and you, were, you were afraid? Where was God then? You must have not gotten it right. right. You have this conversation that's going in your head. The enemy is happy to spend plenty of time talking to you all about how your false belief about God, others, and yourself are pretty true. Now, your false beliefs about you and others are a little bit true, right? For it to work, it has to be a little bit true. Yes, you all are judging me at some level, right? You might leave me because I failed as a friend. But the reality is, is that I use those false beliefs as my overarching narrative in the way I'm going to operate, and the enemy just continues to feed me information. Remind me. And when he's got me in a good place, the next thing the enemy will do is just remind me of all the habitual reliefs that I can use. Because here's the thing, if God didn't show up, then why should I care? And so maybe I will just eat all that ice cream. Oh, I don't like ice cream. But, you know, whatever it is, like any kind of addiction, I, I will justify it. Once I believe that those false beliefs, are, there's nothing I can do about them, then I'm just going to step right into the relief pattern. And you all know what those relief patterns are for you. Some of you, it's, you know, alcohol. Some of you, it's drugs. Some of you, it's too much smoking. Some of, it, some of you, it's just too much food. Some of you, it's like, I'm going to take my emotions. I'm going to chew them up. I'm going to put them in a little box and I'm going to stick them right here and I'll never have to feel them, right? And then I have an ulcer when I'm 60, right? That's how I'm going to deal with it. Is I'm gonna, if, if you're a guy, sometimes you compartmentalize it so you don't even know what your relief is because you have some section in your brain and you just stick all the pain in that section and then you never go visit it, right? So we, we all have these habitual reliefs that the enemy offers us and that you and I end up engaging in. But here's the thing. We all have to justify it. Right? We're all human. We, we will not do something stupid to numb ourselves out with, without some kind of justification. Now, justification is often just stupid, right? Like if you ever are in the middle of the, doing something really stupid or you catch someone doing something really stupid and they're justifying it, it never makes any sense, right? Your justification never makes any sense. But in our brain, we have to have something to justify why we're running away, right? Why we're running away. Now, in the next few weeks, we're going to talk about friendship and what it means to listen to the gospel. I'm not going to fix these things for you. What I want you to do is be able to evaluate your life so that you can say, yes, this is the things that I believe about God that aren't true. These are the things that I believe about other people that aren't true. These are the stories about my failure that the enemy brings to affirm and tell me that all of that is true. And this is how I just shrink away from it and how I justify it. I want you to be in that. I want you to know that. Because if you can't take on God's burden that's light and easy, unless you can identify the heavy one, if you can't identify the foot on your neck, then you have no way of taking it off, right? So let me give you two examples from my own life and then 
I actually don't have time to open it up for questions. But so there are two things. One that just kind of shows you how this works. So you can understand how this burden makes you tired. I want you to understand that the burden is what makes you tired, why you feel tired. So number, number one is, for those of you who don't know, my wife in her elbow had reactive arthritis. Okay, So this is an arthritis that shows up because of stress in your part of your joint. It does no damage to your joint, but it can be there for like seven years, and then it goes away. And it went away. God let it go away. So she doesn't have any damage in her elbow. It's a little hard for her to straighten it out because she had two surgeries on it, but there isn't damage. But that reactive arthritis moved to her foot. Okay, so you don't walk on your hands. You know, so the sad part about the arm was she couldn't play the cello. The sad part about the foot is she can barely walk. Okay, but the way I approach this, this is about me, not about her. All right. She will tell you her part if you sit and talk to her. But my part is, is that this happened to my wife because I didn't get it right. For some reason, I didn't think hard enough, work hard enough, figure it out. So God's like, eh, she's just going to have to suffer. Right? And that you guys are all going to watch how I basically fail my wife and eventually want to go away. And so now I need to figure it out so that she doesn't have to be in pain. Does that make you tired? That should make you tired. I'm tired. That's the burden that I live under. It's not a good burden, but it's my burden. The second thing, it should be a joyous thing. We got a $20,000 grant to put on a conference on November 3rd and 4th. That conference is going to be open to the whole United States. And it's because a a particular denomination, the Christian Reformed denomination, looks at this little community and says, we like what you're doing. And we want you to tell us how you're doing it. That seems kind of crazy. Insane to me. But instead, what I think about it, because you think about my false beliefs, is it's terrifying to me. That means I have to talk about us, you have to talk about us, all that kind of stuff. Uh, I started thinking, well, if we don't get this right, then God's not going to bless it. It's all going to fail. That all the people who are going to come are not coming to find out what we know and to, to learn and be part of it. They're here to evaluate us and judge us and make and see if, if we're acceptable or not. Right? And so I need to work hard to figure it out so people will be okay and this will be a success and I'll be all right. Now, there are a lot of issues going on that I just offered you. Right? I'm sorry about that. But I want you to see you should be tired listening to me, right? That should tire you out. But if I don't stop and evaluate, if I don't do something disruptive to put myself in the boat and have a dialogue with God and begin to understand the burden, then I just keep going and going in these false beliefs and these social structures, and I'm tired. And I'm not in relationship with Jesus. So, what I'm inviting you into when it comes to rest, what Jesus is saying when he says, come away with me, is he's, he's saying, come figure out what the weight is on your neck so we can get it off. Let me be part of that with you. So that's the invitation. Um, and, and I've run over, so let me pray.
Jesus, thank you for these guys and thank you for the opportunity to learn to rest. I ask that you would give them the strength and the fortitude to sit down and evaluate and to, to put themselves in a place where they can begin to see what really is making them tired and what's burdening them and begin to embrace your burden. I ask that in your holy name, Jesus. Amen.